Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays when we sit down with Smart Karma Insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. Thank you for being with us and enjoy the episode. Good day to everyone and welcome to this week's Smart Karma webinar. This is your host, Pranav Rao from Smart Karma's research team. I'm pleased to introduce the Lucrar analytics team today, who will be going over high yield opportunities in Indonesia and India. Lucrar Analytics was established here in Singapore in 2010, and since then has been at the forefront of independent research in the high yield segment to asset managers, family offices, hedge funds, investment and private banking clients who value their inputs into investment and risk management decisions. I'm joined today by Charles McGregor, Lucrar's head of Asia, as well as Strong Nguyen and Leonard Law. Charles, over to you. Thanks, Pranav. Uh, this is Charles McGregor speaking. Uh, today, uh, we intend to go through the following topics. First off, we'll be looking at uh, the performance of Indonesian and, and Indian high-yield indices. Uh, I will be covering that section. The first of our key focuses today is corporate governance in Indonesia and India, and that will be covered by Chung. The second key focus is offshore Indonesian issuance structures and bankruptcy regimes, um, a very important topic, and Leonard will be walking through that one. Uh, Leonard will then provide an overview of our coverage for Indonesia and India, and then we'll conclude by Leonard and Chung going through their current high conviction trade recommendations. A little bit of background to what you're looking at here at the moment. Uh, back in 2013, I established the uh, Lucra Asia High Yield Portfolio. It's, it's slightly different to the Bloomberg Barclays Asia High Yield in that it is purely corporate. There are no quasis or financials. So that explains why you might notice there's a difference between those two indices. Over the, uh, the three-year period, you'll see that the, the Asia High Yield Index returned just over 23%. India was very close by at 22.5, while Indonesia lagged at 17.2. There were a number of reasons for the Indonesian high yield index underperforming. More recently, you'll see that in the last three months, it's lost 80 basis points in value. And that's primarily due to two credits, Shritek and Pan Brothers, experiencing uh, going, sorry, becoming distressed. And so that's weighed heavily on that particular index. If you look at a little bit further, you'll see that between year one and year two, uh, the, the index um, fell, and that was primarily due to the failure of modern land. They're, they're not very large indexes, as you'll see later when you see the, uh, the coverage. So individual credits can have um, a relatively large impact on the, the overall performance. That's specifically true for India, which we see has, has, has performed quite well over the last one to two years, and that's primarily because of um, Vedanta performing very strongly on the back of uh, the commodity cycle. I will now pass it over to Chung to talk about corporate governance. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. In our view, 
corporate governance is highly important in emerging markets where corporate governance is in the nation stage. It's a critical part of ESG assessment. In our experience, companies with weak corporate governance tend to have higher probability of adverse event risk. We believe that paying attention to corporate governance could help bond investors to avoid certain landmines. Companies in India and Indonesia often display weak corporate governance driven by um, both management indifference to corporate governance as well as lack of regulatory oversight. At Lucro, our corporate governance framework contains um, five key areas. The first is ownership, whether the company is publicly or privately owned and the concentration of the controlling shareholders. Second, we look at the role of chairman and CEO and whether there's any separation of this role and whether there's any effective oversight on the management. Third, we look at the executive directors and management, the, the track record, qualifications, and particularly sudden changes in the management or in the board, which could be a big red flags. We look at independent directors, their qualification, and whether they are just professional directors by holding multiple directorships. Last, we look at related party transactions, the nature, the scale of them, and death, and see if there's any potential for abuse. We will next, next like to walk you through a few case study in these two countries in focus. Um, the first off, the first is Reliance Communications. In our first test sheet published in mid-2015, we assessed ARCOM corporate governance as inadequate. We highlighted that a couple of subsidiary and executives have been involved in some criminal proceeding. Some other companies in the group, uh, including the founder and other officials, have been have been have uh, serious regulatory violation, including for example, a bar from investing in listed shares for a number of years. The company received emphasis of matters by auditors year after year for the three years prior to the bonds were issued. The prospectus listed 27 criminal complaints against the company, um, its subsidiary and officer, and 47 regulatory litigation cases. And we also noted that the two independent directors seem to be professional directors professional directors with board seats in many companies. In November 2016, we revised our recommendation to sell from whole on the ARCOM 2020, which was still trading slightly above par. And you probably aware the bond later defaulted. Second, we have Jane Irrigation. In our new issue assessment in January 2017, we assess Jane's corporate governance as weak and highlighted the, the following issues. The four Jane's dominated the board with only one executive director who is not a member of the family. He has poor disclosure information. Every quarter, quarter one and quarter three result only have two pages. Quarter two like cash flow statements and the presentations are not so helpful. There is insufficient info in the annual reports on uh, segment performances, and so sell-side analysts keep having to ask housekeeping questions. The management is overly promotional, 
Despite capital growth and huge receivable issues, the management kept guiding for fast growth and quick reduction in receivables, which did not come through. And some growth to us seems to have come from small acquisitions that the company keep making year after year. It has a history of default. For example, in 1999, Jane Irrigation defaulted on a working capital loan, which was restructured to debt and equity. It had various related party transactions, which is quite sizable. In February 2019, in our earning result, um, which is the quarter three of uh, FY 2018 and 19, we, we wrote that the earning calls have made us more concerned rather than providing comfort as a management seems evasive when answering difficult questions from the investor. And that was the time that we revised our credit bias to negative from stable, despite their recent, at that time, recent excellent operating performance because the company seems to have keep missing guidance, especially for leverage and the worrying earning calls. We also then revised our recommendation to not recommended from whole because the company and the management no longer give us the confidence to recommend the bonds. And the 22 note started dropping in June 2019 and later the company defaulted. Lastly, we have Modern Land Realty in Indonesia. In our first test sheet published in late 2016, we view the corporate governance as weak and we highlighted the following. It is majority owned, about 60%, by the honoris family. And this group, the family, the group that is owned by the family, had a history of debt restructuring. The founder of Modern Land Realty founded Modern Photo, which is the former incarnation of Modern Group, in 1971. When the Asian financial crisis hit, the group has had difficulty repaying debt. At that time, the group owned a bank called PT Bank Modern, which also encountered liquidity uh, issue and was built out by the central bank. But the highlight was that the third son of the founder, who was the chairman or the president commissioner of the bank, was charged with embezzlement of USD 190 million from the bank. He fled the country, but was later caught after 13 years on the run. In 2006, um, Modern Photo also restructured its debt through a debt equity swap. And the, on the honoris family also had interest in other businesses. In April 2019, we revised our recommendation to sell from whole after the company has underperformed. And we didn't, and um, the company later defaulted in 2020. And that is our only ever sell call for an Indonesia real estate player under our coverage. And that's the only one that it defaulted. I think that's it for me. And Thank I'd like to too. pass on to uh, Leonard. Thanks, Trong. So the second key focus that we would like to highlight for high yield investors is the issuance structure and bankruptcy regime in Indonesia. So in Indonesia, the majority of issuers are actually offshore SPVs. And this is because Indonesia imposed a 20% withholding tax on interest payments by Indonesian resident entities to non-resident entities. And this withholding tax can be lowered 
as some countries have double taxation agreements with Indonesia. And hence, the structure that we most commonly see is that the Indonesian company incorporate a fully owned SPV, usually in Netherlands or in Singapore. The bond is issued by the SPV, and the bond proceeds are subsequently channeled onshore through an intercompany loan. This allows the company to pay lower withholding taxes on the interest payments for the intercompany loan. So typically, the bonds appear safe because they are usually guaranteed by the onshore operating entities. However, we would like to highlight that such a structure can present a big problem for bond investors if and when the issuer becomes distressed and has to be restructured in Indonesian courts. This is because there is very high uncertainty of recovery for bond investors. Firstly, it is possible for the Indonesian courts to invalidate the guarantee if certain conditions are met. For example, the guarantees may be voided if the company can prove that at the time when they give the guarantee, there was intent to hinder, delay, or defraud other creditors. Second, there is high uncertainty because the Indonesia legal system does not recognize the concept of precedence, meaning that previous decisions of the court may not apply for future cases. And this has led to inconsistent interpretations of the law by the different commercial courts. Third, there is a distinct difference in the treatment between bank creditors and bondholders during a restructuring. This is because bonds typically involve a trustee, but the concept of a trust is not formally recognized under the law. So this makes it difficult for bondholders to prove their claims in the domestic courts. So a common example of this problem is the case of Bakri Tel in 2014, when the Indonesian court failed to recognize bondholders as creditors of the company. And instead, the court recognized the offshore SPV as the true creditor pursuant to the intercompany loan. And fourth, it is difficult for bondholders to file for PKPU restructuring, as there is often confusion as to whether is it the trustee or the bondholders can file. So this means that bondholders often have to take a back seat when the company becomes distressed. The bondholders have to wait for other creditors to file the PKPU petition, and hence they lose control of the process. Also, typically, bondholders have to band together to form a steering committee in order to participate in the restructuring proceedings. So there is very limited ability for individual bondholders to actually influence any restructuring outcome. Lastly, point number five, but most importantly, it is actually possible for companies themselves to manipulate the PKPU process. During debt restructuring, Typically, the company has to put forward a composition plan that has to be approved through voting by all creditors. So the company can manipulate this voting process by, number one, they can introduce bogus creditors to raise fake claims so that it has more votes to approve its own outcome. Or it can get the court to recognize the offshore SPV as the true creditor. So then it becomes the offshore, fully owned SPV that holds the voting rights and hence allow the company to influence the voting outcome. So given the above mentioned, uh, in conclusion, 
bond investors should consider the background of the controlling shareholders, consider their willingness to honor commitment, as well as whether or not they have a track record of paying debt when due. This is because when push comes to shove, in the event that we get to debt restructuring, having a credible management means it increases the possibility that the company will not try to manipulate the outcome. You know, that it will not appoint a biased administrator and that it will give bondholders their fair share of representation during the restructuring negotiations. Uh, moving on. Okay, now uh, I will provide an overview of the Indonesian and Indian companies under our coverage. So as you can see, we have 16 Indonesian companies and 7 Indian companies under our full coverage. So for each of these companies, we maintain trade recommendations based on buy, speculative buy, hold, sell, or not recommended. You see that we also have the LARA, which is the Lucroix Analytics Risk Assessment, where we rank companies by low, medium, high, or very high risk. We also have our credit bias, which is based on whether or not we think the credit profile will improve, remain stable, or deteriorate. The table also shows our LAGA, which is the Lucroix Analytics Governance Assessment, where we assess individual companies' corporate governance into weak, moderate, or effective, based on the framework that Trong had earlier discussed. So as you can see from this slide, we currently have five buy and speculative buy in Indonesia and two speculative buy recommendations in India. In our next segment, uh, we will briefly run through each of these recommendations. Okay, so under my coverage, I have a buy recommendation on the Chandra Asri 4.9524s. So basically, Chandra Asri has a very strong financial profile compared to peers because it is in a net cash position. So in our view, the Chandra Asri notes are attractive for investors who want exposure to a financially strong issuer. The notes are trading pretty tight at around 4%, but we believe there are few alternative Indonesian high-yield notes that can offer a comparable risk to reward. And next, I also have a speculative buy recommendation on the Sochi Lines notes, which mature in January 2023. The notes are currently quoted at around 80 cents to the dollar, and I believe the notes are likely to trade upwards towards par. That said, the trading liquidity could be poor because only about 57 million of the notes are outstanding. So earlier this year, uh, Sochi Lines carried out two tender offers to repurchase their notes at 70 cents and 80 cents on the dollar. The tender offer was funded through secured bank loans. And we believe the company will be able to raise more secured debt to repay the notes fully at maturity. So that's all from me. I will now pass the time back to Trong, who will go through his list of buy recommendations. Thank you, Leonard. First off, I have a speculative buy on Alam Sutera. It has reported a much better than expected Q1-21 result with a surge in marketing, sales, and revenue. But most crucially, liquidity is adequate with enough pro forma cash following the April redemption of the 21 
to repay the outstanding 46 million 2022 notes. We expect the company positive momentum to continue throughout 2021, driven by the improvement in the operating performance, operating environment, and the demand for affordable housing. The, the key support for Alam Sutera is really the land bank, the very large land bank, one of the largest among our coverage. And the land bank was acquired at low price over a decade ago. Hence, um, CAPEX for land development and land acquisition should be limited going forward. In addition, the land bank was booked at cost, resulted in very high margin, with gross margin of highly over 60% and operating margin of 46 to 50%. The company had a land bank of about 19 million square meter, which is larger than most of its Indonesian peers. It has two, currently two big note outstanding, the 24 and the 25. The 24 and the 25s are trading at similar yield, about 14%. We prefer the 24s as they have shorter maturity. Next, next, we have um, a buy on Lipo Karawaki. The company's fundamentals are improving, and we believe that its cash burn, which is very large in the past, will end with the completion of its 2019 legacy project this year. The one billion capital raise, uh, starting from 2019, has strengthened the liquidity profile significantly, and that will allow the company to weather any weather the downturn and to execute and complete its, its legacy projects and also to develop new affordable housing strategy. The management has guided for cash flows to turn positive from 2022 onwards. It has reported very strong marketing sales, uh, particularly, for example, in Q1 with an 86% year-on-year growth. The COVID-19 situation has interestingly benefited the company owing to the trend of increased demand for affordable landed housing, especially in the suburb. Next, we have um, a speculative buy on Jababika. What we like about Jababika is a very high portion of recurring revenue from the power plant as well as from the dry, the dry port. The company has sound liquidity and a good debt maturity profile with no maturity until 2023. The management anticipated that the free cash flow from this year will be just slightly negative and thus the company should be able to weather the downturn, the pandemic, which has really hurt the industrial real estate sector. So we believe that the company will be able to weather and and turn it around um, when the pandemic subsides. Moving on to um, India, um, our best buy call is Vedanta Resources. Uh, the company continued to benefit from the rally in commodity prices with a huge improvement in profitability and very healthy uh, credit metrics. The key concern is still, on, uh, it's still about its very complex corporate structure and the open offer for Vedanta Limited has been viewed favorably by the market, given that the move is in line with the company's strategy to simplify its complex corporate structure and that will improve the debt servicing capability at the whole core. We believe that the credit remains over penalized by 
the perception of weak corporate governance. But in our view, the willingness to pay is high. The note has rallied strongly on the back of the improvement in the credit story, but we still find that there is a substantial room for the notes to rally further. Last, we have a speculative buy on future retail. The bond have remained under pressure due to the increasing uncertainty over the merger with Reliance amid a legal challenge by Amazon. In addition, there are noises that Reliance intend to renegotiate on the valuation of, this, of its proposed acquisition of future retail. However, we believe that eventually future retail will be acquired by somebody because it's a very valuable asset, most likely by Reliance, even at lower valuation. So with the exception of the Vedanta complex, the future retail notes are the highest yielding bonds among the names under our Indian higher coverage. We believe that the higher compensate for the uncertainty and the price volatility of the notes. Thank you. That's all for, that's all for me. Thanks for that, Trung, Leonard, and Charles. Um, for listeners uh, on, the, on the webinar today, uh, just a pointer, the Q&A tab uh, in the bottom of your screen can allow us to address any questions you've got for uh, Lucre. Um, I've got a couple here uh, that have come in. The first one is around names that you do not like from your coverage risk. Perhaps you could touch briefly on which names you think have the greatest risk today from uh, your coverage. Leonard, could you just take it back to the names under our coverage? Thank you. Are there any of, of your names there? Maybe the hold names that you, you feel a little bit un, uncertain about at the moment, either, I don't know, Gunjatagal or Medco Energy. Maybe I could start first while okay. Leonard is thinking about it because yeah. I have a name here. that um, For me, one of the names that I'm quite cautious on is um, ABM Investama. And what, what I'm concerned about is, firstly, also due to the corporate governance issue, the company management tend to uh, misguidance a lot, meaning that it, give, it, it, has, um, it has a track record of uh, giving relatively optimistic guidance and later on um, did not manage to, um, to meet, uh, particularly re related to the um, production volume of, of, of its mine. And the company has um, has has the TMI, uh, TIA, which the license is um, expiring at um, at the end of uh, this month and uh, of this quarter, the last quarter, which um, there's no update about the company whether it could it could renew the license. And even if it could renew the license, the the reserve from from uh, from that mine is very very small. The production going forward will be from its other mine, which um, the grade is relatively low. Where So what happened is in a downturn, if the coal price go down, it might not be that economical to, to mine from that mine. The company has guided in the past, has said in the past that it want to, to, it want to, it want to acquire a, a new mine so that it can ramp up production. And he has said that for a few years already which but, but, but there's still no no acquisition coming in coming through the company just earlier i think about a month back they wanted to issue a new 
bonds to, I think, to take out the, 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 the 22. But at that, at that time, the existing 22 was still trading at about 14%, which make it very difficult for it to issue any other new bonds. Uh, now the 22 has rallied down to 9%. So it's possibly still possible for the company to refinance these notes. But if the market turns for somehow in the next, maybe next month or so, um, the company would struggle to probably refinance this note again. And management, now, so the company has a big 22 notes to refinance, and then the management still also want to make a big acquisition, maybe a, a few hundred millions for a mine. I just struggle to understand how the company can um, find the, the funding to, to do both at the same time. Um, okay, just let me briefly talk about Gaja Tungau and Tunas Baru. Okay, so Gaja Tungau, um, the big news today is that they announced that they are going to do new notes and to fund a tender offer for the existing notes. So I have a hole on Gaja Tungau and my base case is I do think that they should be able to get the new notes done because it is a smaller issuance amount. So I think they should be able to you know, repay most of their existing 22s. So Tunas Baru, uh, we switched our call to sell just about two weeks ago when we published the tier sheet. Tunas Baru, this is also uh, because there is uncertainty as to whether they can refinance their 23s. I don't think this is going to be a default case. My sell call is more based on relative value because the bonds are trading at about 90 cents or slightly above 90, which I think is quite a fair price to get out if you are holders of the bond. And for Tunas Baru, well, there's uncertainty as to whether they can uh, issue new notes. Probably my guess is if they can do a smaller issuance size, you know, such that bond, bond investors don't fund their capex and if they can you know, uh, increase the coupon and show a few quarters of positive operating results, then I think they should be able to refinance the 23s. Okay, thanks, Landon. Thank you. Um, we've got another question from a listener. Um, it's a question around Java Beka, and I think that should go to Trung. What do you think about Java Beka's ability to refinance? Appreciate the bond maturity is not until 2023, but we have seen smaller Indonesian corporates struggle to refinance. I believe that Jababika has a good um, has a good ability to to refinance the the notes. I think the notes now is trading at about what eight um, percent or so about there. I think it's it's relatively high compared to when they issued it in the past. And when, where, and where I think it could be, but still, I I think that is 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 where it's reasonable, it's acceptable to issue a new notes. And now, when the pandemic, when the pandemic subsides, and when it's real estate, when the industrial real estate pick up probably a, a year or two from now, the risk profile of Yababika will reduce further, and that will allow the company to. Um, refinance the notes. Thank you, Chung. Yeah. Thank you, Chung. I think we've got another question. Just give me a second. There's a question around Vedanta. Uh, will there be more structural changes within the Vedanta complex, meaning the UK company buying up the lower ones? Yes, I believe so. 
I believe that Vedanta Resources, the UK company, has expressed it strongly its intention to buy out the entire uh, Vedanta Limited, which it failed to in the past, and now it's doing the open offer of just 10%. But I believe that once this 10% is over, it will still continue to um, buy up Vedanta Limited, and eventually it may even buy up the Hindustan Zing. Of course, that will also depend on the, on the valuation of the subsidiary. But at the, at the moment, the valuation is not um, excessive in my view. Thank you, Trung. Perhaps this is a question for Charles. Um, we've seen a lot of talk in uh, financial media, at least around inflation. It would be good to get your view on how inflation plays into a lot of your coverage list, especially given a lot of these are commodity names. Uh, one would reckon they benefit positively, but if you can kind of balance or temper that view uh, with your opinions, that would be great. Yeah, that's an interesting one, Pranav. It's a, a little bit of a, a chicken and egg one because the, the commodity guys uh, benefiting from you know, the rising um, uh, prices at the moment, which is what feeds into inflation. So from their perspective, as long as they uh, uh, are responsible with how they manage you know, the, the upswing in their businesses, they should be okay. But as far as sort of, you know, generally inflation, I don't think is going to spike. Uh, I mean, we had the, uh, the CPI coming out from, from China still being relatively low. So it's not something that, you know, is on our radar as being a, a sort of a, a short to medium term uh, risk to the, the credit profiles. Thank you, Charles. We've got another question in here. What are your current expectations on how the Streetex saga will end? And I think this is for Leonard. Um, yes, so Streetex, uh, they are currently undergoing PKPU proceedings already. They had a moratorium on their dollar bonds. For three tax, what well, as I talked about earlier in my slide on issuance structures and bankruptcy regime, now it is important to have credible management. Three tax and Penn Brothers as well, I think they are doing okay so far in the sense that they got into distress, not exactly because of uh, corporate governance issues, but rather because of their you know high leverage and banks being unwilling to extend funding. The good thing is that they have expressed a willingness to pay. They expressed willingness that they, they don't want to, you know, that bond investors will get a fair share of voice during the restructuring. And because their operations are sound, I do expect them to be able to finish their restructuring and continue as a going concern. Because it doesn't make sense for bank, creditor, bank or bond creditors, you know, to push for bankruptcy. Because operations are sound, they do have contracts, they can remain as a going concern. So it makes more sense for them to be restructured, which means there will definitely be a big haircut, but it wouldn't be a complete wipeout. This is not like the Dunia tax case, where Dunia tax is an outright fraud. And I don't think you know these two companies are like that. Understood. Thank you, Leonard. Um, we've got another question around Vedanta. There's, this is a question around whether there is a call risk for the Vedanta 2024s in December 2022. Yes, uh, definitely. Now, 
the bonds are trading at 110 and the call option is i think at 106 so the the bonds are trading above the call option and the coupons are very high it makes total sense for the company to uh, call this bond by probably issuing a new notes which they will be able to do at a much lower coupon and that will also extend their their risk maturity profile at that time when they issue this 24 the risk appetite for the Vedanta is not there at all. In fact, at, at, the, at that time, all of the Vedanta curve were trading at high double digit, sorry, I mean high teen, um, nearer to 20%, and yet they still be able to do this um, 18 point, um, this, this, this bond. Going forward, they should do it again. And this time, I believe that the coupon should be able to be lower than 10%. Understood, thank you. Um, I've got another question, and it's unfortunately a name I don't recognize. Um, what is your opinion about the DOI-DIJ complex? I'm not sure if you guys are um, aware. Yeah. It's not under our coverage, um, unfortunately. Oh, Charles, do you, do you look at that? Um, yeah, no, I, I, it's not coming to me immediately. Is that the mining um, contractor? Yes, yes. It's a coal mining one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's a private company? Yeah, it's part of a larger listed yeah. company. No, unfortunately, we, we don't have a view on that name. All right. Uh, sorry about that to uh, the anonymous attendee. Um, I don't see any further questions on my screen, so I think we can wrap this up. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for participating in today's webinar, especially the Lucra team for their presentation and addressing our questions. We will be sharing a recording of the webinar and the slides with clients via the invite insight on the webinar on Smart Karma. If you have any follow-on questions for the team, please reach out to your Smart Karma account manager. Thanks again for your participation, and we look forward to having you on future Smart Karma webinars. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you liked this episode, please share it with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you at the next one.